Welcome to Conversations. I'm your host, Doug Dewan, and joining me this segment is Kia Garino, Executive Director of Pro-Choice Washington. Join us as we look at issues that affect us here at home in our community and across the nation, especially with this one. Today, we're going to talk about the future of abortion rights in Washington as well as the United States. Kia, thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you so much for having me back, Doug. Wonderful to be here. Yeah, last time we talked, we were under uh, somewhat different circumstances. Uh, We there was a lot of just concern over the possible repeal of Roe v. Wade last time we talked. Can you kind of just catch me up on everything that's happened since then? (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness, it feels like a lifetime ago. But yeah, since then um, we saw the sort of worst possible outcome come true, which is the complete overturning of both Roe v. Wade and uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which were basically the two Supreme Court cases that uh, made sure that there were federal abortion protections in place. Um, This, you know, gave way for states across the country to implement a range of abortion bans and restrictions um, that we've seen. I think we're up to about 14 at this point, and there are other states that are visiting the possibility of restricting abortion care. Um, And so it's leaving states like Washington and other states with uh, enshrined abortion rights in their local laws to really be the recipients of patients from across the country as as care becomes less and less available. And I'm sure we'll go into it, but it's it's much more beyond uh, just the loss of abortion rights specifically, but it's impacting healthcare and health outcomes on a wide range of health issues already. Yeah, and I've definitely seen that. Let's start, though, with what the current state of abortion access is in Washington state. Uh, What threats are present that could reduce access? Absolutely. So as we spoke about last time, Washington had enshrined abortion rights into our federal or our state policies. So we have legal protections here in Washington, but access was already inequitable and fairly limited in certain parts of our state. Um, So in addition to the continuation of barriers like cost barriers, transportation barriers, physical access to a clinic barriers, bias within health systems, all of those still very much exist um, and are, are creating inequitable access within our state. But on top of that, Um, Guttmacher Institute uh, estimated a 400% increase in patients seeking care. And we're already, you know, anecdotally seeing quite a lot of that from across the country, not just regionally. And so, you know, systems that were already fairly constrained as far as um, human and financial resources have really seen a next level of uh, patients seeking care, which leads to things like longer wait times, um, you know, less immediate uh, care outcomes. Sometimes people aren't seeking care because they don't want to wait or they don't, they don't know exactly where they could even access care. And I mean, I don't have to spell it out, but you know, any delay in care around abortion services has a really significant emotional, financial, and physical health impact. Um, And that's if people can even get care. So we're talking about, you know, an additional threat um, in the sense of, a strain on already limited and resources and opportunities to receive care. Um, The other side of a threat that we're seeing in Washington is really um, an influx of both cash and human actions around uh, national and local hate groups and groups that are organizing um, to try to either physically harass or use data to harass um, or to elect people into office across the state that are 
um, either white nationalist in, in their ideologies or are very much against uh, the idea of abortion rights. And so even though we saw good outcomes in our local election, um, we're seeing an increased strain on our systems with those growing investments and actions. So I'd say those are the two primary threats right now. Yeah. And I I think a lot of hate and hate groups stems uh, personally, anecdotally from misinformation. And I think there's a lot of misinformation surrounding abortion. Can you kind of give me a refresher on some of the different reasons why a medical procedure such as abortion would be necessary? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, such a good point, Doug. It's it's most groups are, are actually fundamentally value aligned. Um, and that's, you know, why when you talk about that question of why is abortion necessary? Um, I think it really is a shared value across most people in this country, which is um, there's a wide range of reasons. And that's why we are against any form of restriction, because it's really hard to know if and when and where an abortion procedure might be needed throughout an entire pregnancy experience. So, um, you know, we often think of it as, you know, somebody might want an abortion because they're not ready for a kid. And certainly that's part of it. But it's also used in things like um, ectopic pregnancies, which can lead to infection or death if not treated and they're not viable in any way. Um, there are malformations or other uh, medical conditions that develop later in a pregnancy that either threaten the life of the fetus or the the parent who's carrying that that fetus. Um, and if you don't take care of it, it can lead to infection, infertility, it can lead to loss of life. Um, and, you know, it, it may be a necessary um, treatment pathway for somebody who has cancer, because you can't obviously have a viable fetus if you're going through things like chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And um, the opposite of, you know, once you start to restrict that, we're seeing people being denied like basic care, like things like um, chronic condition medication or things like chemotherapy, when that is obviously the right pathway to help maintain someone's health because it threatens a theoretical or a hypothetical pregnancy down the line because those medications might adversely impact a pregnancy outcome. And so the idea of abortion as a birth control method is only one piece of the puzzle. And of course, it's an important one because there are a lot of reasons economically, financially, physically that someone might not be ready for parenthood. But it's so much broader than that. And the scope of misinformation around both, you know, when and how that procedure is used, but also what restrictions actually mean has led to a more conservative uh, approach that has has led to people in real life threatening situations across the country because people don't really know what that line is, you know, and if people are being denied their um, lupus medication because they might one day get pregnant, like we're going to see some serious economic and societal impacts um, beyond just, you know, additional uh, births. You know, that uh, the the point that you made that the fight uh, against abortion access is starting to restrict health care for people who aren't even pregnant because it might impact a pregnancy down the future is a scary one for me. Um, it, that it feels a lot like uh control over another group of people is that something that you would uh, agree with what is the what is the mindset from opponents towards abortion access from your viewpoint yeah i mean i think i think a lot of people have been a lot of people who have historically been against the idea of abortion have sort of been misled 
about the impact and how it will could impact them immediately and directly, even if abortion isn't theoretically something they're interested. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, I it's a really interesting way to think about uh, how it does then bleed into the idea of, of bodily control. And I think for some of the lawmakers that we're hearing from, that is explicitly the agenda, you know, and we heard from an, a lawmaker in Idaho sort of this summer sometime who, when asked why he voted for abortion restrictions and against childcare, they said, anything that allows a woman to leave the home, I'm going to vote against. And so, you know, it, it's not about state rights, you know, and it's not about the protection of a fetus. It is, it is very clearly, at least at the, at the sort of political level, about the control of individuals. And, you know, the, there is very clear data that shows that if somebody has an undesired pregnancy, it will lead to much worse socioeconomic outcomes, including a much higher likely, a 4x times likely of becoming uh, below the federal poverty line, 3x more likely to be unemployed. Um, you are less likely to participate in voting or other civic duties. You are less likely to be out there advocating and protesting when you are constrained by uh, sort of the economic constraints and the physical constraints of, of childbirth. And so there is a very strategic reason that a control agenda is in place. And of course, the people who are most likely to be most impacted through those control mechanisms are people of color, Black women in particular, Indigenous folks, LGBTQI folks. And so again, it's that further compounding of that sort of national agenda to sort of control who is or who isn't participating in our society. Yeah. So then a, a big multi-part question here. What do we do to protect access locally, nationally? And what does the future hold? Where does the fight kind of go from here? Great question. So, you know, one of the, the easy answers, quote unquote, easy answers is what we saw this November, which is when people vote, they vote to protect this right. We know that there is a majority of people in this country who believe in the right to abortion care and they understand the consequences. So even though there is this narrative that it's 50 50 or that, you know, it's sort of a fringe movement to protect abortion rights, it's not true from a numerical perspective. And so participating in the civic system at all election levels is beyond critical. And I think that's true for most of the, the rights that are being stripped from us right now, like voting rights, um, trans care rights, uh, abortion rights, considerations of marriage rights. All of that can go away if we do not participate in the system of democracy, even the imperfect system that it is, um, because that just hands over that that autonomy that you're talking about, the restriction of autonomy. Mm -hmm. So continuing to vote at all levels of government. And, um, you know, next year, we're going to see a lot of really scary races at say like the school board level or the commissioner level, races that have historically been considered less essential. That's actually where we're seeing a lot of hyper-conservative uh, candidates being funded and promoted. And it is actually a place of great influence um, so, you know, not just showing up for the presidential elections, but really doing your due diligence um, to not allow the removal of your civic duties by continuing to participate in it. So I think that is still always going to be true. I think the progressive movement in general needs to be thinking about how to strategically move from crisis response to prevention. Mm. So there are places like Washington, Oregon, Massachusetts, who are, are holding the line, you know, for entire regions, but 
are not necessarily considered the priority for investments because we're not in crisis externally. And I think we need to be thinking strategically and long-term as a movement um, and not just being responsive to crisis because that really allows us, allows the opposition movement to be more strategic while we're jumping from fire to fire. So really thinking about it from a national level and a local level, how do we re, re uh, distribute our energy and our resources um, and I think the the last one I always like to talk about is continuing to speak about abortion like it is, which is basic healthcare. Like it is not exceptional. It is not unique. It should not be separated out from other medical and health procedures just because it became a political firing rod. It is a life-saving intervention. However you might define life-saving, it is the most life-saving intervention and it allows for societal growth. Like there's huge amounts of data around what it means to have access to good contraceptive and reproductive care and the impact it has on over, overarching economic systems of a country. So continuing to talk about it without stigma, without exception, it is just healthcare. And if we take away its power as a political firing rod, I think it will move towards being more accessible over time. So, this is my three answers. <laughs> yeah, it's a great answer. Um, so aside from vote and talk about it and normalize it, how can we help? What are some action steps that we can take uh, as individuals? How can we get involved if we wanted to? Great question. So um, really, depending on where you are, you can speak with your local advocacy organization, like our organization, Pro Choice Washington, always is looking for folks to do things like door knock, to phone bank, to join our events, um, to actually lobby your lawmaker. We can, we'll teach you how to do that, how to actually get FaceTime with your lawmaker and tell them about the issues you care about. You know, And that is true even beyond abortion rights. We'll give you the skill sets and the pathways to have face-to-face. So signing up with organizations like that who allow you to be really involved in the civic system and those are really powerful ways. I know they often seem daunting or, or overwhelming, but it's a really effective way to drive change. Um, also giving money to your local abortion fund. I think we've talked about this a lot over the last year, but um, a lot of the care is going to have to be shifting people from state to state and abortion funds are the most effective you know, financial mechanism for doing that. And I think continuing to fund those organizations, continuing to fund advocacy organizations that's really how we protect the policies and the people today. You know, and organizations like ours are, are working on a huge slate of, uh, of bills this year to try to actually create protections for people, you know, and really cr- try to create the systems that allow for people to both provide and get safe care. And that can only be done with volunteer power, with donor power, with membership power. So, um, Yeah, giving dollars and signing up to volunteer are also two ways to be really effective in this space. So uh, where can people find out more? What's your website? Yeah, so you can go to prochoicewashington.org, and that's Washington spelled out. Nice. Well, uh, Kia, before I let you go, is there anything that we haven't hit that uh, that you think is important that we get out there before I let you go? I think the, the last thing I'll leave you and everybody with is just, you know, this is a long game. It took uh, generations to pass Roe v. Wade and it took generations to overturn it. So not to feel discouraged when we have backslides and to really look at the forward motion that we made this year in a short period of time as 
astronomical growth and that we don't really have the luxury to sort of let the foot off the gas and to really be ready to sort of maintain your energy and to think about this as, as the long game. And that's true for all of these rights conversations. You know, we, we don't have the, the luxury to, to lose energy. So do what you need to do to protect yourself and think about this as a multi-generational movement. Yeah. Kia, I appreciate you taking time out of the fight to speak with me today. Uh, and thank you so much no for coming on. Yeah. And thank you for listening. Conversations is a public affairs program of this station.